Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is our sixth episode, and today we are going to be talking about Pixar's Inside Out from 2015. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matt, how's it going? Pretty good, how about you? Good. We just had a four-day weekend, so I had plenty of time to think about Inside Out and get ready to record the podcast here. Yeah, very exciting. It's a, I was jealous of the four-day weekend. Um, I've been teaching today. Um, if my voice sounds a little bit more tired than normal, it's because uh, my kids were mad at me for making them change seating, so I couldn't get them to talk to me. They were giving the, me the silent treatment. So it's just me talking all day long, um, but that's okay. Makes sense. If your voice is tired, you can just uh, lower it and get the sexy radio voice. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. So. We'll get uh, we'll get our best ratings yet. <laughs> Excellent. All right, so let's talk a little bit uh, about Inside Out. What's uh, what's your personal history with this movie? Yeah, so um, this movie came out in 2015 and i went and saw it in the theater i think i saw it on the day of release um you did you saw it on opening day yeah this is uh this movie came out you know uh, we were close friends at this point and we were both very excited about this so um it's the all of this is we had chatted about this movie when it was coming out and thought about it um for me in particular uh i was really excited for Inside Out because uh, at the time I was teaching a creative writing class and one of the things that we had talked about in the creative writing class was um, the idea of emotions and using like um, uh, emotions to drive a story and trying to appeal to different kinds of emotions Um, and we had also talked about the structure of Pixar movies in particular so then when Inside Out was coming out, my entire creative writing class was, we had talked about like the trailer and the concept, uh, and it had driven some of our discussion of what we had been doing. So I was really excited to see this movie when it came out, to see the way that they approached the subject, if it lived up to the expectations, all of those things. Interesting. Yeah, I was able to pinpoint when I had seen it because I had... Uh, chatted you when I had seen it and so I also uh, was able to pinpoint when you had seen it so I saw it the day after you I saw it the day after release and my memory of it is that I was not quite as excited about it as you were I don't think Um, there was a moment in the chat when you went to see it where you were you had said I'm seeing inside out and I was surprised that it was out already. So I hadn't been tracking the release date in the same way. And if you go back and look at, so the way the Pixar release schedule had happened prior to this, starting in 2007, they had a run of four movies that I think are generally considered to be just unmitigatedly brilliant or at least they're extremely high regarded and it highly regarded and it seemed at the time like 
it was impossible for them to keep making movies better than the last one. And then, at least when we left the theater, my feeling was like, oh, they kept making better and like they did it. They were able to top the previous movie. And so that run was Ratatouille in 2007, Wally in 2008, up in 2009, and then Toy Story 3 in 2010. Uh, in retrospect, I don't have Toy Story 3 over up, but I think like emotionally at the time it felt it felt like they had stuck the landing and continued to just improve in what seemed like impossible circumstances to improve. But then I think their next three movies were a lot less well-received. Um, you had Cars 2 in 2011, and then Brave in 2012, and then Monsters U in 2013. And these are all movies that I love for various reasons, but I think it's hard to hard to argue that they're not a tier below that previous run. And then for the first time, uh, I, I guess I didn't check in how long, but in as long as I could remember, as long as I had been a Pixar fan, they took a year off of making movies. I think they ran into some production trouble with Inside Out, and there was no Pixar movie in 2014. So I wasn't 100% sure if they were gonna, if the magic had been lost or if they just didn't have it anymore. So, but then I went and saw this movie and it instantly jumped into one of my top 10 movies. And I haven't seen it again since then because I don't tend to rewatch movies a lot. So I was pretty nervous going into this rewatch that maybe the feelings of magic I had in the movie theater were were fake and and I wouldn't feel that way again. Yeah, and it's a and spoiler alert, they were a complete fraud, you know, could couldn't enjoy this movie at all, right? No, so, yeah, it was a huge no. bummer. <laughs> huge bummer. No. Um it's yeah, this movie holds up really well. Um I think I saw it I saw it in the theater. Um I think I saw it twice in the theater and then a couple of times at home showing it to my kids. But out of out of everything we've covered so far, besides Free Solo, this is the movie that I've seen the least. Um, and I think this was my fifth time watching the movie um, since since it released. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I didn't have it quite as high as you did when it came out. Uh, I still enjoyed it thoroughly, and I thought it was a wonderful movie. Um, and it made me cry in the movie theater like a lot. But that's that's also not a unique experience. A lot of movies make me cry. Um, but you know, it's, it going back and watching it and it really has held up. And, um, I think I like it. A, I've liked it a little bit more as I've watched it, um, and seen it a few times and, um, it hasn't really moved up a lot in my categories because it, I loved it a lot, even from the beginning, but it, it has held up where other movies may have dropped off. Mm, yeah. So it was before watching it this time, it was my fourth favorite movie of all time. And it was even better than I remembered it. Even the stuff that I had memories of not liking as much in the theater, which we'll get into. Um, I liked them more this time through and so but 
again, it's my fourth highest movie, so there isn't really a lot of room for it to move up. Right, yeah. And whereas I have it at number 110, but I have a lot more movies on my list than you do, so... Yeah, uh, I guess we have... a very high regard for that film. I guess we haven't mentioned it, but my... With the flick chart link is in our show notes, so you can go check that out. But mine is just a little over 300 movies, and I think yours is like 1,300, yeah. It is just shy of 1,500 right now, uh, my list of movies. So, um, yeah, I've watched many, many movies. um, And so making it into, you know, the top 150, that's the top 10%. You know, it's a... This is an A... Uh, nine and a, like nine point two out of ten. Um, it really high, ra- highly rated film for me, and it's kind of held steady at that point for a long time since it came out. Awesome. Um, so let's talk just a little bit about twenty fifteen. We won't go too deep on it because it was not that long ago as we're recording this. But I pulled just a few big things that happened in 2015 that helped me place the time period as I was looking it up. Um, So the Syria refugee crisis was in 2015. Uh, There was huge terrorist attacks in Paris in November of 2015. And then this one surprised me, and I wish it did not surprise me, but the Paris Climate Accord was in 2015. Feels like something we've been talking about for ages and we know what happened during Obama's presidency but I did not remember that it was quite so late in his presidency yeah it's a I I hadn't thought of that one either and you know it's a the the thing that you sent to me that really just kind of blew me away is that this movie released what was it like four days before or four days after it was four days after Four days after Donald Trump announced his candidacy, um, which that just—I don't know—that that gave me it, it sent me for a tumble. Um, yeah. So say. so I actually did a little bit of research on this because I was trying to um, figure out exactly when our when my our world started to get tainted by the fact that Donald Trump was running for president. And it was not immediately. Um, So I think this was either the last or second to last movie I saw in theaters under the unadulterated Obama optimism. Because the first message I had to you where I started to get worried about Donald Trump, or I think I wasn't even worried at this point, but I was like, this is having negative effects on our country, was August 30th of 2015. Yeah, yeah. So, Um, and even at that point, you know, it's a, uh, the vast majority of media was not looking at it entirely seriously, and I know that for me, I didn't really start to look at that uh, and and consider it as a serious run for the presidency until around October, November of that year. Around the time, so November, because it was the Paris terrorist attacks yeah. and the way that he is re- responding to those. So, um, so yeah, that's uh, it, it's interesting to place that right at that point. It was very much a um, a crossing of the threshold um, in 
in my perspectives on a lot of different things. Yeah, and I I think it is interesting to note because I do have just very happy memories of this movie and I remember leaving the theater very carefree in a way that um yeah, in several months I wouldn't have anymore. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we, you mentioned how, yeah. Did you mention how this movie hit you this time around? Uh, yeah. I mean, I cried through the entire thing. Um, it was, yeah, I was watching it. I sat down to watch it and, um, it just turned it on. And as I've said a few times, my habit is usually to break it up into pieces, but this one, I was just too engrossed in the film to break it up, so I just watched the whole thing. And it's not particularly long either. Um, and as I started watching it, uh, my spouse, Lori, uh, started watching it as well. I had it on, and uh, normally my spouse doesn't jump in and watch uh, watch all these movies as we're going along. Uh, but this time, Lori did, and the kids were playing video games, so they weren't really paying attention to what was going on. Uh, but Lori and I were watching it and, uh, I teared up a lot more and I started tearing up a lot and Lori teared up a little bit as well. And I was just sitting cuddling my dog while I was watching this movie and just crying profusely through the entire thing. Yeah. When you told me that it happened, then I got a little less nervous for my, for my rewatch. Cause I, I had some level of trust that you wouldn't, react that way if I wasn't going to react that way. And yeah. also I knew that you had historically been lower on the movie than I am. So, yeah. Yeah. It's it's just a real good touching movie and the things, you know, they tell it in a real uh, you know, just a way that that tugs at your heartstrings. They know how to, you know, twist your emotions and get you going and um how to get you invested in the characters. So it's a, it's a real easy film film to love. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the the peeps who who helped work on this film. So I we won't talk too much about all of the actors and actresses that they had, but I did quickly want to run down the five emotions just because I think it showed they got a lot of star power for this film, and it shows the difference i think between not that i mean we talked about the stars they were able to get for toy story but these were people who were all at the top or at the crest of their career at the time of this movie so playing joy we had amy poehler and this was right after the uh parks and rec had finished and then playing sadness we had phyllis smith and this was i believe six years after the office had ended and then uh playing fear bill Hader, and i believe he had just finished his 12 year run on saturday night live and then anger was lewis black who had been famous from his stand-up comedy for uh probably forever i guess and then playing disgust was mindy kaling who also uh the office had ended six years before she was in the middle of the Mindy Project as well as that time, at that time period. Oh, good. I so, didn't, didn't look that up. Yeah, she... Um, though this was one of... She kind of made a transition into uh, production, um, writing and production and all those kinds of things. And so 
this this and the end of uh, the mini project and this film are kind of it's not that she doesn't act anymore that she hasn't done any acting since then but uh, she drops off significantly in the number of credits that she has after uh, after this film yeah I think it was actually the other way around I think she transitioned into acting because the office cast a bunch of their writers into acting Correct. roles. Yes. And then after yes. the success of that, she continued to do it and then went back and focused more on production and writing. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an accurate timeline. Um, so, though she was able to do a little bit more of more of the production stuff, uh, like executive producing and things like that, that she mm-hmm. wasn't able to maybe necessarily have... Um, Though she did executive produce on The Office, so uh, so I guess involved in all of those things, um, but kind of a going back and forth between those roles a little bit. Yeah, just a hugely skilled and talented individual. No, nope, she's incredible. You yeah, know? she's just phenomenal, and she's an incredible writer and one of the best in the in the, you know one of the best writers out there, especially in the field of television. What I find particularly interesting about this list of, uh, of actors is that these are all TV people. Um, mm, yeah. So I find that fascinating. And then you have, um, you know, you also have like Richard kind in here and you have, Oh, what's his name that plays the dad. It's the, he's also a TV guy. Um, He's very famous. I shouldn't be forgetting his name. He's the guy that was the lead on um, that really weird show, Seven Peaks, Twin Peaks, not Seven Peaks, Twin Peaks. Kyle MacLachlan. Yeah, yeah. Kyle MacLachlan. Yeah, yeah, Kyle MacLachlan. So, yeah, so a lot of TV people that were involved in with, with this one, which I found interesting at the time period. Um, and they just do an incredible job on this film. Um, the voice acting is uh, just complete uh, phenomenal performances from everyone involved. Yep, absolutely. And then you had a few people that you had pulled that you wanted to talk about. So the the kind of guy behind this film is Pete Docter. He directs the film and also does a lot of the writing on the film there's a team of three writers that he's involved that's involved in this one but he's the one that generates the idea and then puts the work on this to get it through development and this one spent a lot of time in development and the reason why it spent a lot of time in development is they would they came up with the concept and put this all together and then they do screenings where they do these animations and then they take the pixar um, folks into the room watch the film and then get their taste and what they always heard was, ah, this is a great idea. But what they never heard was, oh, this is a great movie. Mm. And so it was always in this idea stage, and no one really had it figured how it could be an actual movie. Uh, and what they really struggled with was just, like, the structure of the plot and the geography. And uh, they, they had these different problems with... Uh, with turning the idea into a good film that people would sit and watch for an hour and a half. And so it, Pete doctor is the guy that stuck at it through all that time. And eventually before this film, before this film like comes together, he's like walking in the park and he's starting to think I'm a fraud. Everything (laughs) I've done in my life has been a waste 
It was all everyone else's work that I was just mooching off of. I have no good ideas. This one film that I care about, I can't make it work. I'm going to go in and tell everyone that I'm a fraud and I'm going to resign, was what he decided while he was on this walk. And he's like, this stinks. I'm so sad, but it's the right thing to do. And then as he started to feel sad, he started to think of the effect that sadness has in your life of when other people in his life had been sad and this sadness drew him closer to them. And that's when the light bulb went off that he was like, oh, I've been thinking of this film entirely wrong. And before the whole journey had been with joy and fear were the emotions that were traveling through the, mm. uh, through the whole thing. So oh. they switched it up and put sadness in, in, uh, paired up with joy on the journey. And that's when it turned into a movie. Oh, it seems so obvious in retrospect because joy and anger are not uh, ostensible opposites. Or joy and fear. Um, uh, sorry, so, yeah, joy and yeah. fear are not ostensible opposites. Yes, yes. And, you know, um, there's a lot of, um, a lot of, shall we say, Rule 34 content out there of joy and fear. Um, I, you, you probably don't know about that. But, oh, I do not, um, but uh, yeah. I don't know. Can we get away with putting links in the show notes? I guess check your show um, notes to find out. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. So uh, uh, from these same kinds of ideas and like the, these characters being paired up with each other, but, uh, but that's really tur- what turned it into a movie was, uh, was when they decided to take sadness and bring it in. And at that point, they brought in another writer. I think her name is Meg. I can't remember her last name. Um, they bring her in and they have her work to retool the script with Pete Doctor to take this focus and put it on sadness in particular. Yeah, I'm so glad he kept with it because <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't have this movie. Um, and Pete Doctor has done a lot of work at Pixar. He's been there for the for the long haul, but this he's only done he's only been director on four films so those are monsters inc up and then inside out and then most recently soul yes and somehow men managed to win best animated picture on three of them so you know (laughs) oh is that all uh, yeah that's all um so he has an amazing hit rate as far as those go yeah pretty good who do you have next so the next person is uh, uh, a person named docker keltner um that is, I think, a German name. Uh, this is the psychiatrist, or psychologist, I should say, that they brought in to, um, to consult on the film. Uh, and films are always bringing in people to consult on them, but from all the information I could gather, uh, this psychologist had a much bigger influence in consulting on the film than is typical for a consultant. Uh, and it went through a lot of very rigorous research uh, and thought into how to portray the emotions. So they met with a bunch of different uh, psychologists to talk about um, how emotions work and how personality works and how the emotions and personality of children work in particular, how they would react to different things, how you know the subconscious works and um, all of the all of the. Um, the infrastructure of the film, of the story, where all the setting takes place, they really did the research to make sure that this was backed up by, at the time, the current 
science about psychology and in particular the psychology of you know um like tween girls yeah and And, go ahead you didn't mention it with pete doctor but i believe he had said that watching the emotion watching his daughter change as she hit around 11 um was one of his big driving one of the impetuses for having this idea for the film he was wondering what is going on in her head yes he he was noticing the changes that she was going dramatic changes in personality mm-hmm. uh and so it it was just hard for him to deal with and it seems like you know he's the kind of person that that uh, approaches his problems and tries to kind of ride his way um ride his way through them in in some ways but so they talked about this and one of the things that, that this researcher talks about is that it is very typical for girls when they're um, going you know through the process of puberty to uh, have this kind of dramatic change in personality and have um, sadness become a much more core emotion uh, in in the personality of these girls and one of the things that this sign this psychologist talks about is that like in the film that you have kind of an emotion that is the driving kind of core personality emotion that this is similar to what happens in human beings that are uh that our emotions a lot of times will have one emotion that kind of drives a lot of our personalities kind of in the driver's seat uh and the other emotions are kind of uh interacting with all of those things so and many other aspects of the psychology, a lot of it is very accurate. And uh, I really appreciate that about this film. Uh, and I'm glad that they went through the rigorous process of researching it. Yeah, I think the... I didn't know any of that when I saw the movie for the first time in 2015. But I think the work that they did to make it correct was what spoke to me at the time it just everything felt right i mean obviously the manifestation of it um is rather fantastical um but the outline of how everything played together and what was important felt it felt real and it felt i i think i had said to you at the time like if i had seen this movie as a kid it would have changed how I viewed myself and how I viewed what was going on inside my head. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, and I had been thinking a lot about this before I watched the film. Um, I had been, you know, I like to learn about psychology and all of those things, but in particular, there's a podcast that I had been listening to, um, a lot. It was in my heaviest rotation at the time period. It's called You Are Not So Smart, uh, and it is hosted by David McCraney. And when I saw this film, I had that the things that he had talked about in my mind as I was watching it, and things like the illusion of the self and the way that we uh, you are mostly emotional beings rather than rational beings, and um, the way that uh, different structures of the brain like the subconscious uh, drive a lot of the things that we do even though we don't realize them uh it was i loved that i sat and watched this film and saw so much of that research reflected so shout out to 
David McCraney and his podcast, uh, you know, he doesn't know we're mentioning this, but um, I think it really ties in with all of this. And, and I've had that in mind every time that I've watched it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, oh, let's talk about our, uh, really quickly, we have a Stream It crossover. This will be a pretty common Stream It crossover if, uh, for any Pixar movies, but following the being a an animated piggy bank the piggy bank turns into fits a good what 20 years later so that's john ratzenberg doing the voice for yes and he does a lot of pixar films so it'll the more pixar films we watch the more convoluted figuring this storyline out is going to (laughs) be yes john ratzenberger has been in all each of the first 22 Pixar animation <laughs> films. So he has been all over those films and usually in, you know, cameo roles in, in a lot of things. And he continues to perform in, in, all, of these, uh, in all of these things. He's only missed a couple of them total. And, you know... It's always great when he shows up for his his little cameos. In this case, Fritz is just like a construction worker. Um, yeah. It's only on scene like for two like two lines. lines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then he's gone. But yeah, that's our that's our only crossover actor that we could find from this one. Yeah, he's the one who upgrades the console at the end of the movie. Yes. All right, and then we've got one last piece of personnel to talk about here, and that's going to segue us into the first scene that we're going to talk about, and that's uh, the composer, Michael Giacchino. And uh, actually, you did the most research on this, so I'll let you talk about him. Yeah, so um, Michael Giacchino, he has done a lot of different films, and specifically a lot of films for Pixar. Uh, And so... Among his credits, we have The Incredibles, Ratatouille, and Up for for his Pixar films and Inside Out. And he's also done a lot of other films like Star Trek The Final Darkness, Mission Impossible 3, Speed Racer, um, Star Trek. He also did Star Wars uh, Rogue One and many, many other credits. He's a very prolific writer. And, yep. and he got attached to the MCU for Doctor Strange and Spider-Man Homecoming. Yes. So you have probably, listeners, heard um, music by Michael Giacchino at some point. Um, he is very prolific. And, uh, you know, he's a very good uh, writer. One of the things that he talked about is he tends to write scores that are very sad he gets brought in to do things for sad films and his, you know, he's trying to make you cry. Uh, and so, you know, if you're crying when you're watching one of these films, he's the, he's, he's responsible. So it's interesting. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that the, it's interesting looking at this film next to up because I feel like, both the scores, especially for the opening sequence, contain a lot of similarities. They have this, uh, over the course of the prologue, the solo, the theme that's largely on solo piano or on piano underscored or supplemented by other instruments. 
Yeah, it's a, uh, similar in this, and um, I think that's a trait that shows up in a lot of his a lot of his films. I remember some of that in Rogue One, though it builds up and has a lot more, um, you know, it gets more chaotic as that film goes along, but uh, s- similar ideas uh, with, with that film as well. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting about uh, Michael Giacchino's involvement is he's just really close fa- friends with uh, with the folks over at Pixar, uh, in particular Pete Docter. So the way that he got involved with this film is they were just at like a baseball game or something uh, for 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 their kids, and Pete Docter just says, "Hey, yeah." So I, he's just asking him about work. And he says, "Yeah, I'm working on this thing about emotions. I'm not sure." where it's going and Michael Giacchino says well that's a really great idea uh call me up when it's ready and I'll score it and that's <laughs> how he got involved so you cool. know good yeah. dig man yeah it's a, it's a good deal um and they bring him in you know pretty early on in the process and he um you know the the composer does such important work especially with uh putting everything together in, in adding all of the emotions and what he talked about was that uh he watched the film and it just made him cry really hard as he watched it and then his goal was to make the music reflect the emotions that he was feeling as he saw the film so it's that's kind of his process of what he's going through yeah it's a great score as i said i was listening to it today and i was just like oh i want to <laughs> i want to watch the movie again yeah that's um, good which I've been trying to listen to the soundtracks the day that we're recording and they haven't all had that had that effect on me. So yeah, this one was particularly evocative. So let's jump into our first scene here that we're going to talk about. And I wanted to talk about this prologue or the opening sequence where they really, we get introduced to joy, we get introduced to the other four emotions uh, sadness, fear, anger, and disgust, and uh, they all show up as the, what's her name? Riley. As Riley is experiencing these emotions or having need for these emotions for the first time. And so we get introduced to all of them, but what this sequence also does is it sets up all of the rules of the world and when I watched it in the theaters and when I watched it this weekend and then when I watched it before recording the podcast, I was just so engrossed watching those little orbs of memories get made and then fly down the, what do you call those? The track, I guess, and light up the entire place. And then you have the, some of them become important enough memories to become core memories. And then those core memories are what drive your personality. They're the things that make you what you are. Um, probably a little strange to have them become islands. I think the probably the only reason they had them become islands was so that uh, they could fall and get destroyed. But Yeah, the, have the geography uh, yeah. work out that way. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I just, I love them setting all of that up and then you really, you get to watch the normal world for these emotions that are main characters and then for about six minutes and then everything changes when the, it's announced that they're going to move. 
yeah, it's a it's it really does set up the rules pretty well of of what's going on here, and I I do think it's interesting this idea that so much of Riley's personality is built on a foundation of just a few simple core memories. Again, this is mm-hmm. uh, this is an interesting um, look at the way that uh, the way that we think of personality and the way that we we build our the stories of our life. Uh, we often have like core memories that we build our identity around. And I think that fits in with the idea of these islands that there's a big structure that's built on essentially these very few core memories. Um, with that said, one of the things that the film gets into later on as we're going on is that there is um, a lot of substructure to what's going on in Riley's mind that these core emotions and the main personality are not aware of. And I think that's really interesting. So much of what's happening uh, and w- the decisions that they're making are being driven by these these subconscious or substructures in the mind that the the core personalities uh, or the core emotions up in the the main personality center, the headquarters, mm-hmm. uh, they aren't aware of all that stuff. They think you know they think that they're just you know driving this little person around and making the decisions of what to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I noticed in this opening sequence is sort of this original sin of the parents and it where I think the first line of the movie or if if it isn't the first line it's very close is the dad says you're our little bundle of joy and that creates joy the character and the emotion but then, as we'll find out in the movie, it's also what puts so much pressure on Riley because joy has to be a dominant emotion. And if um, once you start tracking that, it's something that's mentioned by the parents a lot. There's a lot of pressure yeah. on Riley to be the happy one. And even when the bad things happen, um, there's that scene where her mom tells her, we're so lucky to have you. You're just always so happy and yeah and says you know we can be happy for your dad as we're going through the through this can you do that for for us and putting that responsibility on an 11 year old is a lot um not that i think the parents are you know like bad parents or anything here they're just no not. they're clearly good parents right exactly um, and one they're of the things not understanding the way the psychology of their of their child is uh is being affected by those small you know things that they're saying Yeah, and one of the things that really stood out to me this time was, I mean, these are great parents, and they are loving, and they do a lot for Riley. And clearly, Riley has a lot of happy memories for them, but it really highlights just how a few missteps can really uh, gum up the works, as it were, and really create a lot of headaches. And one of the... We had talked about this for Toy Story, um, but I think it's even starker here, is that there are sort of two different messages in this movie, depending on whether you're a parent or a kid who's watching it. And the parent moral, the parent um, idea is you can't put this pressure on your kids, and it's just too much because they're going to change as they grow up um which is linked with the 
the kid message, which we'll get into in a, in a bit here. Yeah. Um, now, one of the things I was trying to work out as we were chatting is mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of the film, Joy appears first while she's just crying as a baby. But then sadness appears right afterwards, right? I, I didn't go back to this up. 33 seconds, yeah. Yeah, 33 seconds later. And, you know, the, the other emotions uh, arrive later, but sadness has always been there. But Joy has always been suppressing sadness from the beginning, you know, taking this emotion and trying to keep it locked up tight. And sadness, you know, is can't be locked away. And uh, the, the repression uh, is just, you know to making it so that sadness is having a toxic effect whenever she does show up. Uh, but I find it fascinating that the, that they show up so quickly right from the beginning. Yeah. And I think that brings us, that's a really good segue into the second scene that we wanted to talk about. Yeah. So uh, yeah, go ahead. So they move to Minnesota or from Minnesota to San Francisco for the dad's new job. Riley is trying to stay positive. The mom's talking to her and trying to help her, you know, see the positivity and everything. And just everything keeps going wrong. The house is a disaster. The pizza parlor puts broccoli on their pizza. One of Riley's greatest fears we will learn later in the film. Um, And then she ends up at school and is trying to have a good day at school. Uh, Gets up to talk to the class and... All of her emotions are kind of interacting together, and the she's having a hard time keeping uh, everything just everything under control. And then sadness comes over um, and um, touches one of the core memories and turns it blue. And also, yeah, the uh, the teacher asks Riley what some of her favorite memories from back yeah. home are and she's recounting playing hockey with her with her parents and then yes. as she's recounting it she's very happy but then the the memory turns blue and turns sad yes and it yes, turns exactly. out that sadness has touched it and then riley breaks down in class and starts crying in front of all of her peers who then give her weird looks and she's embarrassed and you know essentially shuts down from there yeah, and then what happened, because this is such a traumatizing event, getting crying in school, it's it the whatever makes the memory spits out a blue core memory. And it's going to be the first sad core memory that makes up Riley's yes. personality. And Joy freaks out. Uh, there's Phyllis or sadness is so proud that she's going to have a sad core memory, but joy just will not have it. She goes and fishes it out of the core memory holder and all of them fall out and then they get sucked up in the chaos. They get sucked up the tube and go to get uh, lost in the subconscious or whatever. Short term memory or long term memory. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's there's so much. And that's one of the things that I find fascinating, just a quick tangent, is that, you know, this film is two stories happening at once. You know, it's mm-hmm. what's happening with Riley and then also what's happening with Joy and Sadness. And it's really hard to keep track. It's such a complex story that they've put together. But, yeah, so it's a, tra- it's a traumatic event. And um, one of the things that really stands out to me from this one is, you know, 
I I think about like sadness creates this core memory and what the effect would have been if if sadness had just been allowed had not been repressed in this moment and you know if she had just let herself be sad i can only imagine that her teacher and her classmates would have realized like how hard it was for her and um you know her teacher probably would have decided to kind of take her under her wing and maybe a classmate would have reached out and said hey i know you're sad you know it's i play hockey too you know and all of those kinds of things and she could have made friends and then the complexity of this emotion um she could have dealt with a lot easier but because she's repressing the sadness and she's trying to be happy uh even when she's not this is you know what causes the entire disaster yeah, the thing that struck me, particularly in this scene, and I'm curious what you think about this, but, and maybe it's because we just watched it, but it really felt like what we had done was we just took the plot structure of Toy Story and then plopped <laughs> it right onto this movie. We have Joy, who is a, what were, I, what were the words you used? A competent leader? Yes. But her greatest downfall is that she can't respect the needs of the other emotions, the other people in her cohort. Mm -hmm. And then she gets her authority gets challenged and she freaks out and tries to do something bad. And then as a result, they both get lost and have to make their way back home to the kid that they love and are trying to support. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in both cases, the 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 leaders, the main characters, the protagonists of these stories, commit atrocities to maintain mm-hmm. control of their realm. Though I will say, you know, uh, I I think that Joy, like trying to pull the core memory out and like say, hey, let's hold on and see what's going on, try to understand <laughs> this, is not quite as bad as Woody trying to murder Buzz. Um, it is. So. It is not quite as bad. And the th- it's clear that they've. I I'd be curious to know how conscious that was but i think they did a better job in this movie of layering joy learning the various lessons about sadness um Mm -hmm. you could watch each of those steps happen where even though the final betrayal by joy i think is worse than any final betrayal that woody has in that movie Mm -hmm. um But just to run those down quickly and remind me if I missed one, but Joy sees that sadness is able to get through to Bing Bong in a way because Bing Bong is sad and so sadness is able to associate with him. And then... Just real quick on that one, um, Amy Poehler in an interview talked about how that was kind of the scene that stood out to her the most. Mm-hmm. Um, is where sadness is able to get through to Bing Bong, and Joy's just like, "Oh, cheer up, you know, d- I'll distract you, all that kind of stuff." So, yep. And then there's the moment where Joy realizes that sadness has been. She re- there are a couple moments where she recognizes the utility of sadness because sadness understands the layout and how to get home but also that sadness was correct in that they needed to wake uh wake riley up in order to get the train of thought going they needed to wake her up by scaring her and that joy was not 
going to scare her. And so you see Joy learn that sometimes emotions other than joy are going to be needed. Are going to be needed, yeah. And I, I think this also gives this kind of idea that um, sadness a lot of times allows us to be more introspective and to understand and reflective and to understand ourselves better. Because sadness knows, she she knows her way around the rest of the brain a lot better than Joy does. Mm-hmm. Um, joy is Joy is lost when she's out of the HQ, but sadness, you know, uh, knows where to go. Yep. And then the final lesson at the end of the movie is that Riley needs sadness, that she needs both of them. So, and then of course that betrayal is Joy trying to ride the tube up to Riley without sadness. Really, really, really horrible thing to do. Yeah. Uh, in, In Joy's defense, she probably thinks that if she gets the core memories back, she can start up the personality islands and uh and sadness can make it afterwards um but yeah i mean mm-hmm. very controlling here uh joy in this domain yeah do you have anything else you want to say about this crossing threshold sequence the the main thing that that really stands out uh, what i th- would say is for me the biggest takeaway from the film is how important sadness is as an emotion um, mm-hmm. and that the, it is repressing our emotions that really causes the worst havoc. Um, it's important for us to allow ourselves to feel emotions. And just a quick comparison, when I talk to my kids at school uh, about emotions, I frequently do. Um, one of the things that I use to compare it with is from Doctor Who where the doctor says that fear is a superpower. And talks about all the strength that fear gives you. Um, and, you know, this film and that speech and reading different kinds of psychology really compels me to think of all of the different emotions I have as being tools, important tools. Uh, every emotion is a good emotion. It's just how you react to the emotions. And, and you want to, to recognize your emotions and let them serve you rather than being uh, letting them take control and you know cause you to do things that damage you and i think in this case if they just would have let sadness uh let sadness take over the control panel a little bit and do her thing i think that um i think that riley would have been a lot better off yeah but then we wouldn't have had a movie this is true as well and we wouldn't have come to a good you know an important self-realization uh at the end of the movie yeah i i think the talking about the harmonization and the emotions working together brings us pretty nicely to the next scene that I wanted to talk about, uh, which is this dinner table sequence where uh, it's right. It's the first time Riley's interacting with her parents after joy and sadness are gone. And so they're sitting at the table eating Chinese food and the three remaining emotions, uh, fear, anger, and disgust are trying to figure out how to run the control panel without joy or sadness. And so... And I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, I think I recall them saying that they would they were going to try to act like joy. Yeah. Like just do yeah, what joy do. would do. Yeah. So <laughs> How would joy do it? And But instead, of course, they're not joy and they're not sadness. And so the response from Riley comes out very moody. And... I think in a way that 
uh, certainly rings true, I think, for the stereotypical view of what a moody teenager, teenage girl um, looks like. And the reason I wanted to talk about this scene, though, is because you get, I think it's the first time in the movie you get a glimpse into someone else's head consoles. I believe that's correct, yes. And you, so you get to see inside mom and dad's consoles. And so there are parts of the scene that I really love and then parts that I don't like as much. What I really like is that it's basically giving the end of the movie away to you. You see in mom and dad's consoles that the five emotions are not at war with each other. They're working together and they're discussing how to handle a situation. And I think that's the lesson that we're going to reach at the end of the movie. And then that's also, we'll see Riley's console get upgraded as well to have more buttons to press so that the committee of emotions can emotion by committee. Yeah. And uh, I think the way they designed the control panel is in Riley's control panel, it kind of only has space for one emotion to kind of control things at once. When it expands, now there's enough space for them all Mm. to sit down and kind of, you can have control by multiple emotions at the same time. You can feel multiple different things that all affect you in a little bit different ways. These nuanced combinations of emotions. Um, yeah, that that part stood out to me. Uh, stood out to me really well as uh, well. And uh, additionally, I think it's interesting that uh, on that same point, that the kind of driver or like uh, leader emotions in the mom and the dad are not joy. They're different. They're different emotions. You have sadness in the mom, and then uh, uh, anger in the dad. Um, not that, you know, he seems to be a particularly angry person or that she seems to be a particularly sad emotion, but I think it also gives you this idea that these emotions have more nuance to them. And, um, as the film goes along, we're going to see that, that, um, the emotions are more complex and are more important than we may have realized as the film started. Yeah, and I, the part that I didn't like about this scene was I think this was a section that they targeted to have a few more adult jokes for the parents. So you see the mom being really annoyed at her husband for not taking the hint. You see the husband getting lost watching the hockey game and then brought back to the situation by his wife and then you see her daydreaming about a pilot that she fancied way back in the day. And the Brazilian then, uh, helicopter, was it a helicopter pilot? I can't I remember. I believe so, pilot. yeah. Yeah. And then you see her dad go to DEFCON 2 with putting his foot down. And I felt like a little bit of these characterizations, A, they didn't really line up with the outward characters of parents that we had seen through the movie. Um, yes. But I also felt like they were a little, they were a little bit of cheap jokes. Um, um, yeah. I, I think that some of them, you know, there's parts of it that, that 
I get, and you know, I don't particularly mind. There's, you know, they're going for uh, a little bit flatter characters characterization of the parents, mm-hmm. um, and part of that allows us to keep Riley as the focus of the story, um, and you know what she's going to do instead of uh, focused entirely on what the parents are going to do. It's Riley's decisions that drive the story, but at the same time, they do play into stereotypes of like um of parents in particular like moms and dads and like uh gender um stereotypes and reinforcements and um i think that plays into some of the lack of nuance uh and turns the jokes into into feeling a little bit cheap there as well yeah i guess Like, when I watched it, I particularly bumped on the chaos that was going on in Dad's head as he was approaching DEFCON 2. And then DEFCON 2 was, like, based on the amount of chaos that was going on, I expected, you'd expect him to, like, yell or throw something or, you know, hit the table. And instead he just says, go to your room. Go to your room, yeah. (laughs) Um, And so I guess, now that I say it out loud, I guess... I can make a reading of that the point is to show how different your internal world is from your external world, especially if you're good at mastering your emotions. But I don't know. I had to get 50 minutes into a podcast with you before I made that realization. And it was still something <laughs> I bumped on in the movie, you know? Yeah, I agree. And it's a, uh, you know, I, I both love and, you know, it makes me feel weird that moment at the end where he's so proud of himself for having put the foot down. Uh, and then, yes, uh, that was the other one. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. He's like, oh, wow, we did a good job. And then um, the mom is like, we left a Brazilian pilot for this, you know. And so, uh, you know, it's just I it's funny. Um, but at the same time, it just has and I can't put my finger on exactly why it's, uh, I don't love it, but, um, those jokes in particular in that scene, uh, just don't, I don't know. They don't, they don't line up as well for me, uh, as the other parts. Yeah, um, I think it just doesn't really fit with the rest of the movie. I don't think yeah. it like, they're a little, I don't think they're like super gross jokes or anything. I don't think they're like no, 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 no. offensive, but it just doesn't, fed really and this is one of the other things i read about apparently you know the difficulty that they had with this scene is that essentially you've got what is it um what would that be five 18 different characters that are all Mm. in the scene interacting with each other at the same time 15 Um, emotions and three three humans yes exactly and so you know, they, it, as I was reading through, they, they had more complex ideas about how to approach this. And then they kept simplifying this scene down farther and farther and farther because it was just so chaotic and difficult for them to pull off. So so that kind of makes sense to me. Um, the other thing, though, so th- this one, this scene, a thing that I, I keep coming back to and keep thinking about. So you have the mom and her emotions and they're all very similar and they're all female. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the dad's emotions are also all very similar, all male, and then all have that same mustache. Um, whereas Riley's emotions are, you know, 
nearly an even oh, split yeah. of female representations and male representations. There is a lot of discussion um, in different areas about, you know, what this represents or what this means as far as uh, Riley's, you know, conceptions gender of fluidity. gender yeah. yeah, and all of those kinds of things. I think that it's... Um, uh, I don't think we should read that into what the uh, the uh, filmmakers were trying to do. I think that they just, you know, wanted to get uh, several high-profile actors that were both men and women mm-hmm. um, to perform the roles. Um, but I do think it's if, – if that's useful for people to read it that way, I think it's a valid reading of the text to say – that Riley has a mixture of different kinds of influences. There's people that view Riley as being um, gender fluid or as being non-binary. And if that's a helpful way for people to think of it, I think I totally encourage people to, to uh, you know, go with that reading and, and, uh, and play around with the, that idea. And certainly one of the, if you are looking for support for that theory, um, the fact that they made one of her core personality traits being about hockey, something that's uh, tends to be thought of as more masculine. Yeah. Is... Well, and then additionally, there, there's a few things that are, it's hard to tell if they're trying to, I think what the filmmakers were going for is they're trying to make a character that's going to appeal to, uh, they were afraid that a, a very female coded character would play well to male uh, audiences like mm. boys. Yeah. Um, because you have Riley is also kind of a name, a gender neutral name and, you know, plays hockey. And then the clothes that she wears are kind of gender, gender neutral as well. So I think all of those are deliberate choices they made to kind of, um, try not to code her as too much female. But, um, I do think there's some interesting things that they're doing with, uh, with gender representation and the emotions um, that are, can, can be useful to people uh, if they are reading them that way. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about it, but I think the obvious way to cast this, um, they went the obvious way for joy, sadness, and anger, having joy and sadness be female and then anger be male. But I think if you had asked me sight unseen which way to go for fear and disgust, I think it would have been... Uh, flipped. I think I would have made fear female and discussed male. Yeah, and I think that probably the the probably the worry with that is um, that if you cast fear as female, there's um, and disgust as male, there may be a little bit of um, how's the way to phrase this, like you may come off as arguing that uh, towards like negative emotions as being more associated with femininity. Um, uh, Though I think fear in the film, it's important for us to understand that there's a nuanced view to it. I think it easily could have been read uh, as, you know, uh, playing into different kinds of gender stereotypes as women being more timid, uh, whereas, uh, um, or, men being more discerning these gender stereotypes that don't really hold up if that makes sense yeah yeah i'm if it wasn't clear i meant their subversion of what my expectation would have been to have been a very good thing that they did i I think it helps the movie helps the movie work yeah i agree i agree 
Uh, do you have anything else about this dinner table sequence? I don't, know. All right, let's talk about our last scene, which is yours. Whew, yeah, the last one. You know, I don't know how you could talk about this movie with, uh, without talking about this scene. Um, you know, uh, joy and sadness have gone on a journey through Riley's subconscious. They are trying to make it back. They, um, Joy consistently sees that sadness understands the decisions that should be made, uh, kind of knows what should be done. Um, knows the way back, um, knows where the train of thought is at, knows how to um, wake Riley up by using uh, by making her afraid, um, and knows how to console Bing Bong. And so consistently you see uh, you see sadness knowing what the right things are and then joy kind of ignoring sadness. Um, but then you know joy decides to break off on her own, abandon sadness, leave her behind and ends up, falling into the uh the what do we call this the memory dump memory dump, um, yeah falling down into the memory dump with bing bong the imaginary friend uh and getting stuck down waiting to be completely forgotten and erased and finally realizing that she can't be in control of everything um, and accepting the sadness within herself, joy, joy accepting her own sadness. Yeah, it's uh, that's a great moment. It's the defining moment for joy. The unfortunately, I think the end of this sequence is probably one of my two least favorite parts of the movie. Um, and I'm curious what you think about it because I, there, there's like a couple of deus ex machinas. The first one is them using this, the, what's it called? The scooter, the, the rocket, the rocket to be able to escape. And man, I spent a long time thinking about what purpose we have for joy to get out and for bing bong to get left behind and die or fade into existence and i just couldn't come up with one which made it feel a little cheap to me that we were killing bing bong for I think for emotional manipulation, but I don't know. Maybe you have a reading that'll help me. I don't know. Get through you know, it. this uh, this part of the film just makes me. You know, this is the part that makes me sob the worst. Oh, you were just manipulated when, then. Whew, it is. You know, it is rough. It is rough because they're riding that rocket down, singing uh, Bing Bong song, and Bing Bong comes to the realization that you know that they can't get high enough with him in in the in the rocket and uh sends joy off to to rescue herself and sacrifice himself to to save riley um yeah i don't know with with the reading i do think so i wouldn't call this a deus ex machina because i think there's a lot of places where they foreshadow and kind of uh line up that this is going to happen um they talk about the the rocket that he's going to fly her to the moon uh, earlier on um and specifically that they sing the song and that the song powers the rocket um 
those things are clarified like early on. They find the rocket later that's been abandoned um, that, uh, that Bing Bong finds and brings along with them. And then it gets lost and dumped into the memory dump. Um, and so we see all this happen. We, it's, all those things are set up that they can be there. Uh, and also we have this moment where Bing Bong just breaks down and cries and sadness cries along uh, with him about just that he is, he's already been lost. Um, and he's just been wandering around in Riley's subconscious this whole time. And he just wanted to, to be her friend again. He wanted her to remember him. Um, and he comes to this realization that, you know, it's not really going to happen, but he can still do something to help her um, mm-hmm. and go on this journey. And, you know, he cries out and sadness sits down and comforts him. And he, he comes to this realization. I think that realization really feeds what happens uh, later on in the film when he decides to sacrifice himself to save Riley. Um, and, you know, you're there's you know your imaginary friends and there's things that you have that that you do forget and they disappear and that doesn't mean they're not part of your journey and it doesn't mean they don't uh they aren't there for you and it doesn't mean that they don't have a big impact on you even if you don't remember them um and i think that's that's a useful lesson to learn like the experiences that we have and the relationships that we build even with it's an with an imaginary friend uh, they're valuable even if you know even if people don't necessarily remember um, every experience that you had with them yeah I like that a lot and it's it's important for people to move on that yeah people being you know Riley not not the emotions important that they're gonna grow up and move on to other things and that's okay yeah. and that's good it is yeah it is and you know, oh, but it's rough. It is. It is definitely a, an emotional part of the film, and it is. You know, uh, you look on social media, po- people talking about this, and one of the things you see up over, over and over is people saying, "I will never forgive Pixar for making me cry so hard about a character <laughs> named Bing Bong." So, um, I haven't it's a, seen it's that. It's a great moment. Yeah, it's a it's a common thread uh, on social media. That's funny. I mean, Richard Kind helps a lot here. Oh, he's... his performance is brilliant. Just absolutely brilliant. You know, I, for for me, my initial reaction to this, when Bing Bong shows up, and I was watching it in the theater, I just, uh, to be perfectly honest, I rolled my eyes at it, and I'm like, really? This is the character that they're going to have traveling with them? And he just, you know, I did not like the character at first. Um, he is just so uh, bizarre and... Um, it just I did not like the character and then he kept growing on me and growing on me and growing on me in that moment where sadness comforts him I'm like oh I like this character now and then he dies and I'm like oh look what you did to me Pixar it's a it's a betrayal of the highest order I think you know now that I think about it I think part of why it probably worked a little less for me is I kept thinking he was going to betray them i kept thinking he was going to be a bad guy because your opening shot of him is him like stealing the memories and putting them in his bag and so i think i just never let go of that especially when he like i was still so nervous that he gave her the bag of the um to put the core memories in that somehow 
it was going to oh, get yeah. stolen. So I think I, I probably think just never, that, just never got past that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. What you bring to a movie affects how it affects you. Yes. Stream it. The yes. stream it motto. <laughs> it's true. Yes. Uh, or, that's all I have about that scene, though. But, you know, I just love it. Yeah, I think we've got a few closing thoughts here on the movie, and then we'll, we can wrap this up. Um, really quickly, I'll mention the, mention the other, or the second day of Sex Machina that I was thinking about that didn't really work for me. And that was using the stack of boyfriends. Oh, basically, yeah. Yeah. basically, they've been trying this whole movie to get back, and then it happens very quickly. In, with the stack of boyfriends. With the stack of boyfriends and then bouncing yeah. off the trampoline. I don't have an argument for that one. That, that one still, I'm like, I don't know. Okay. No, and I, sure. think, I think if you asked them, they wouldn't either. I think they probably know it's a weakness of the movie. Like, compare yeah. compare that sequence to the RV race in Toy Story, and there's just yeah. no comparison. Um, yeah. The, the only thing I do like about the road back sequence, though, is that when they hit the window and they're falling down they use anger to break the, the window and yeah. i think it's really nice to show that it basically told me like anger has utility as well as an emotion it's an important part of this emotion crew and on that same point uh it's disgust that fires up the anger um by insulting him um mm-hmm. And so, you know, all of the emotions together are able to are able to get them in. Uh, and I do think that is useful. I like that. And then you had one other thing, yeah? Um so the the other thing that it gets to here at at the end of this at the end of the film, uh Riley gets back and, you know, the the bus stops and she goes home and walks in and sees her parents and you can tell that they're they're reacting initially with fear and anger where were you what were you doing and she comes in and joy at this moment allows sadness to Mm -hmm. take the controls um and riley just you know she just breaks down and cries and tells them that she just really misses minnesota and her friends and playing hockey and their house. And it's at that moment that the parents empathize with her and connect with her. And they get down on her level and give her a hug and tell her that they miss it too. And sadness allows all of these characters to connect with each other. And as I said before, I think if you were to define like the key thing to learn about this is that uh, you can't repress your emotions, but especially sadness. And that sadness as an emotion is valuable because it brings us closer to each other. And, you know, we live in a culture that tries to get rid of sadness so much. We're such an anti-sadness culture mm-hmm. that it's all about cheering things up. And I just think that sadness is such a good emotion to have. And this idea of being able to just release your emotions and have a good cry and connect with people because of that is an important lesson for us to learn and is an important lesson for kids and their parents to learn. Yeah, and it's so great that you see the parents accept that from Riley and deal with it and that it's not shaming her, it's not Hmm. telling her 
to be happy like it's it's almost as if there's a whole other movie for the parents where they come to terms with the fact that they had put too much pressure a a movie that we didn't get to see of course where they put too much pressure on her to be happy and it's okay to be sad yeah it is is. and then it's good the final nice surprise of this movie that it gave me chills in the theater. It gave me chills when I watched it. It gives me chills just thinking about it now. That the memory comes out and it's it's a split memory. It's joy and sadness and that they can coexist and they can both live in the same memory and that that's what needs to happen for emotional maturity. And it allows her to create more complex and uh, developed islands of personality as well. Um, I don't know if you noticed that, but the, there is a lot more development on those islands of personality once they are split memories. Um, and just this idea that you can feel two emotions at one time and it's okay. And, um, you know, it's, this is how life is and learning to understand and accept your emotions is such an important development for people to make. Yeah, it's part of being a discerning adult. It is. It is. Yeah. It's a great ending. Uh, that part That part makes me cry even worse than when Bing Bong dies. Um, and I think that one's really definitely 100% earned um, when she goes over and cries and her parents just uh, wrap her up in, in their arms and cry with her. And it's just a sweet, tender moment. Well, with that, why don't we go ahead and wrap up here. The Although, I don't know if I said this at the beginning, this is hands down my favorite world that Pixar has made. I just love everything about their conception of it and the construction of it. And I was thinking about how much I would want to see another movie in this world or see them explore this world more. But I also did start to get a little worried, like, I couldn't think about what the story was. So, yeah, I don't know. It it certainly made me appreciate how difficult it was for them to get here for this one. It's true. It's true. It's a though, uh, you know, if we when with when we get around to watching Coco, then we'll we can discuss uh, my favorite world that Pixar has built. But that that's a that's a discussion for another time. All right. Well, as always, if you want to give us some feedback or just shout out to say hey and say that you listen to the podcast, you can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A, and you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yeah, and we uh, love hearing from everyone. It's always nice even just to get messages from people that they're listening to the show or they listen to it, and... If you want to send us more long-form thoughts, you can do so at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. The link is in the show notes, but it's just those three words. No spaces, no underscores, no nothing. Podcaststreamit at gmail.com. And next week, we are going to go back to, I believe, 1977 and watch Pete's Dragon. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious about this one and excited and a little bit nervous. 
So yeah, I, I've never we'll see seen it, so I don't know what to expect. And that'll be our penultimate episode of the season. So, we're, yeah, it's very exciting. Wow, it's gone speedy. It has, it has, and hopefully people are enjoying it. All right, so let's do our closing questions here. And as I said last week, the people had been just pinging us with their answers to these closing questions. So that brings a smile to both of our faces. So feel free to reach out and give your own answers. Why don't yes. you go first, Matt? Uh, yeah, so my question, it's, uh, it's there's this moment that, you know... Um, Riley faces one of the most terrifying things in her life. Um, oh. You know, she does face the, the clown, but the thing I'm thinking of comes before this, where she faces at the pizza joint when they put broccoli on the pizza. Um, so my question for you is, what is the strangest thing that you've ever had on pizza? Oh, the strangest thing I have ever had on pizza. Uh, it has to be clams. There's a, And I don't eat seafood, but there's a pizza joint in connecticut that is famous for their clam pizza and when we went there i tried it even though i How don't think it? i had had clams at that point it was fine clams are kind of chewy <laughs> they're, yeah they're not like yeah they are something i yeah. particularly enjoy um yeah, now just, i've had I, clam chowder since then so i'd probably enjoy it more if i had it again i don't mind clams but it does seem it is chewy and it seems strange for a uh, a pizza ingredient but you know it's uh, if that's what you're gonna do that's what you're gonna do um I, for me oh, well go ahead. before you go there was some pineapple on pizza slander in this movie and i will not stand for it pineapple on pizza is unbelievable and you can at me all you want because i will defend this till i die uh okay excellent. sorry you can go ahead what's the weirdest thing you've had on a pizza uh, the weirdest thing that I've had on a pizza, this was in uh, when I lived in the state of Idaho, um, which should give a clue. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Potato pizza. Um, sliced potatoes on pizza. I have also had this. It's a lot of starch, but if they if you get them crispy enough or seasoned well enough, it's really delicious. That, that sounds like it would be really delicious. Mine were not um, crispy <laughs> enough. They were soggy. Um, <laughs> And so it was like, you know, when you go to, you know, you go get some French fries and then you leave them out for a couple of days and then, you know, you'd go and eat some of them and they're kind of stale and soggy and really gross. That is what the pizza tasted like. Um, I've had some other strange things, you know, corn and um, and uh, I've even had snake on a pizza. But, you know, the weirdest one to actually eat was potato pizza. Um, do not recommend, um, though, as Zach says, apparently it is possible to enjoy it if they're crispy. Was it a white pizza? Um, yes, it was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Has to be a white pizza. Yeah. So, traumatizing memory. Well, you're the one who asked the question, so I can't even apologize (laughs) for bringing it up. Uh, that's all right. That's all right. What's your question? Okay. So, in one of the articles that you had... Put for research, they had mentioned the um, experts that they had conferred with kept wanting them to put a wider array of emotions that we use into the movie. But Pixar, I think, understandably said we just can't have that many characters. We have to limit it to five. Right. Uh, so my question to you is, if you could expand it to six, 
what emotion would you put into the movie? I think I'd put awe. Awe. A-W-E. Awe. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, a good one. Yeah, you know, it's a it's it is emotion that I feel on a regular basis. And, you mm-hmm. know, if you were to pick an emotion that's in the driver's seat for me most of the time, I think that's probably the one. Um, I just enjoy things and I'm in awe of things so often. So, yeah. Ooh, I think I have to change my answer now. I was going to say exhilaration because I thought that would be very good for a movie. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not so good for a preteen in a movie. I don't know. Um, but now I guess I have to say curiosity. Oh, that's a good I, one. Yeah. I think that would be a very useful emotion. Yeah, that'd be... It would be very interesting. Uh, I have a feeling that if you added curiosity as a character in this film, uh, the plot would have ended up quite a bit different. Um, Probably. Yeah, that's interesting. And who knows? Maybe it would have been a four-hour movie. Possibly, yeah. You know, and if they if they end up making that sequel, maybe maybe the emotion they're going to go with is like you know lust or something, um, and it might be a little bit well. more grown up. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. That would be an interesting one. Oh, I meant to say we're doing a, we've got, it's like the Marvel um, stinger at the end. But I meant to say when we were talking about um, Riley and her potential gender fluidity um, or non-binariness, they also had that moment with the boy where the boy was very into Riley and Riley did not really care about the boy at all. Yes. Yeah. She just skated off. Just kind of blows it off. Yeah. um it's interesting okay so that was our little our little stinger and we'll talk to you next week for pete's dragon bye bye